Good evening. Tonight, let's, uh, we're going to open our Bibles and we're going to take a look at uh, the prophet Obadiah. But we're not going to begin there. We're going to begin far earlier in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at, at some of the history, the background between Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. Because Obadiah, the writings and the, uh, the message that's there is one of judgment on Edom for their treatment of Israel whenever they were attacked and plundered. But to really get a sense of the relationship between those two nations, we need to go very far back, all the way to the birth of Jacob and Esau. And so let's begin there, looking back at Genesis chapter 25. Let's turn back to Genesis 25 together, and we'll read starting in about verse 21. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 21, says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it's so, why then am I this way? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. The name Jacob means one who takes by the heel or, or supplants another. It's the idea of two people climbing a mountain together. And if you take the one in front by the heel, you're not there to do them any good at all. You're going to pull them down so that you might get ahead. And that's Jacob. That's the name he was given. The one who would supplant. The one who takes by the heel. And then a little further down in that chapter, verse 29, there was Jacob and Esau were different sorts of men. Esau was a skillful hunter. Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. In verse 29, it says, When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. And therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means red. You might think he was called red because of his redness all over him whenever he was born, but here it says it was when he asked for that red stuff there that Jacob, his brother, was making. He says, let me have some of that red stuff. Let me have a swallow of it. That's when his name was called Edom. And it's in memory, as I can understand it, of this momentous event. Not only did he ask for a swallow of that red stuff in verse 30, but in verse 31, Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. The birthright is an important thing. Birthright was a great privilege. It was the double portion of the inheritance when your father passed on. Everything that he owned would be split between the, the descendants, but 
the firstborn had the birthright, he would receive the double portion in most cases. And so Jacob says, first sell me your birthright, and then I'll give you a swallow of this red stuff. And Esau said, verse 32, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The nation that came from Esau were the Edomites. And I think it's important that we recall that fact at this point in our look at their history together. Not only were they fighting even in the womb before they were born, but after they were born and as they grew, and at this momentous event, when his name was changed because he wanted some of that red stuff so bad that he sold his birthright, the name Edom would have been a reminder as long as this history remained of that moment when his birthright was sold to his younger brother, that mistake that he made. Coming to Genesis chapter 27, we're, we're skipping a little bit here. Genesis chapter 27, Isaac has become old and he's called Esau in and he's going to give him a blessing. So he sends, or sends Esau out to Get some game in verse 3. He says, please take your gear, your quiver, your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare a savory dish for me such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebecca was listening. And so we've got the, the problem here between the parents. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. And, uh, and Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau. And so you've got the two parents. And Rebecca's going to play a little game with Jacob and Jacob is going to play the supplanter he's going to play the one who would grab by the heel for his own benefit and he goes in and in verse 20 he comes in with a, a fresh made dish and in verse 20 Isaac questions the timing and I want you to watch the things that Isaac questions verse 20 Isaac said to his son that's Jacob he says how is it that you have it so quickly my son and he said, because the Lord, your God, caused it to happen to me. Okay, so he questions the timing first. And you can almost see the little red riding hood. My, what large eyes you have, grandmother. Right? And so he questions the timing first. And then verse 21, come close that I may feel you. He wants to touch him. Make sure that he's nice and hairy like his other son. Jacob, of course, and Rebecca had thought of that. So Jacob came close, verse 22, to Isaac, his father. And he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands were the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. And so he brought the game to him. And then verse 27 and verse 26 and 27. Isaac calls him close to kiss him, but wants something else in reality. Wants to smell his son. Because he knew the difference between the smell of one versus the smell of the other. One was a hunter out hunting wild game, and the other lived in tents, indoorsmen, right? Versus outdoorsmen. 
And there's a smell difference. Verse 27, he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him. Said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. And so he blesses Jacob as he would have blessed Esau. And, he, and Jacob played the supplanter there, the one who would grab by the heel. And so he commanded that his, uh, his brothers would serve him and, and his mother's sons bow down to him in verse 29. Cursed be those who curse you and bless those who bless you. And that's when about the time that Esau came back. And in verse 36, I want you to notice what Esau says. He said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Verse 39 is where Esau gains his blessing. And Isaac says, behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. And away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. And so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob and Esau did not have a pleasant, brotherly sort of relationship that you might want. They were at each other's throats. They were against each other, Jacob playing the deceptive one, Esau playing the brute. They couldn't get along. Not from the womb, not until this moment. But it's important to recognize that in Genesis chapter 33, the two brothers did make peace. Genesis chapter 33, and we'll read about the first four verses. It says, Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, he'd been sending gifts to his brother a long time before this, sending several waves of gifts to Esau to try to make peace. And now you can imagine him walking up to Esau, and as he's getting closer, he just, you know, he's, he's bowing down in, in honor of him, trying to make the peace, trying to make the peace. He knows all the things he did to him those years ago, and he's trying to make the peace. And so now in verse, uh, verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And there was the brotherly relationship you would hope for. And they talk about the things that were happening and why he was sending all the gifts up in verse 8, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so there was kind words, hugs, tears, a reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. But God said there were two nations in the womb, not two men. And those nations continued to struggle. You've got more than 400 years that have passed between here and the book of Numbers chapter 20. And let's turn over there to the book of Numbers chapter 20. 
Numbers chapter 20, more than 400 years later, Jacob and Esau, the men, are long dead, but the nations, the descendants that came from them, have remained. And in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17, the people of Israel have almost reached the promised land. They're almost there, but they have something standing between them and Canaan land. And you know what that something was? It was the Edomites. And so they came to the Edomites. Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. He says, Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. They want them to be sure that they're not going to steal from them. They're not going to be worse off for it. They're just going to wear the king's highway a little bit with their passing. Verse 18, Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with a sword against you. And again the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I'll pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand, and thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through this territory. And so Israel turned away from him. And we've talked about this before. Some time ago, they would have had about a 70 mile walk through Edom. But because Edom turned them away, now they have to go around their land. And that was going to be something like 230 miles on foot. The whole multitude of them, all of their animals, all of their livestock. Who knows what they would lose in the process of that journey around Edom. But that's the way they were forced to go because Edom wouldn't let them travel through. So the grudge was held. 400 years later, the people of Israel came and asked a favor from Edomites, and Edom said, Not a chance. Edom continued to stand opposed to Israel, continued to hold the grudge of their father Esau from so long ago. In the book of Obadiah, Edom is not the primary aggressor. They're not the ones who instigated an attack on Israel. But they threw in their lot with the enemy. They threw in their lot with the enemy. They stood alongside the enemy. And when the enemy was all done with Israel, they went in and took some of the plunder. And whenever Israelites tried to escape, the Edomites, they would cut them down or turn them over to the enemy. And they would laugh. They would laugh at the misfortune of the Israelites. And so in the book of Obadiah, we find this feud still going strong. They still hold the grudge. They're still looking to to gouge and hurt the Israelites any chance that they get. So I'd like to read with you the text of Obadiah. It's not a long book. It's only 21 verses. And so let's read, beginning in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasure searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter because of violence to your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of Shephelah the Philistine plain and possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This message of judgment on Edom is stern it is heavy and it is equal to their brutality on their brother. There are some New Testament shadows in Obadiah that I want to focus on. There's about four of them that I want to note 
tonight with you. One comes in verses 3 and 4. Obadiah verses 3 and 4. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. In the loftiness of your dwelling place. Who say in your heart. Who will bring me down to the earth. Though you build high like the eagle. Though you set your nest among the stars. From there I'll bring you down. Declares the Lord. That is a New Testament principle. When we trust in ourselves. And find our confidence in ourselves. And build our life around ourselves. God brings it crashing down. That's Matthew chapter 7. Verse 26 and 27. Let's look there. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 26 and 27. The end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has a little illustration that He gives. Something about a wise man and then a foolish man. And the wise man built his house on the rock, right? He says in verse 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everything's fine with the wise man. His life goes great, even in times of great difficulty. But verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. That's the same principle that God plays out with the Edomites in Obadiah. They trusted, they acted on words that were not God's, and they built their house on sand. And God was going to cause it to fall. Look back at Obadiah. Obadiah about verse 11. Remember, it was the violence to their brother Jacob in verse 10 that they would be covered with shame and be cut off forever. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. There's a parable that Jesus gave in the New Testament about a a Samaritan. A good Samaritan in the book of Luke. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And I want to read this with you. And I want to note what he says. Luke chapter 10. And especially about verse 30 through 32. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also when he came to the place saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him he felt compassion He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Edomites played the opposite of the Samaritan. Jacob was beaten, left half dead. Perhaps others passed by, but Edom stood with the enemy. And then when the plunder was to be had, they went in, rushed in and checked his pockets to see if he had anything left. God said they would be cut off forever and covered with shame for that because they gloated over their brother's day because of the way that they chose to treat him when he was in need. Obadiah verses 12 through 14. 
They were gloating over their brother's day, the day of his misfortune. They were rejoicing in the day of destruction for them. In Romans chapter 12 verse 15, we're taught a very different way to behave. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're to show empathy and sympathy toward those who are in need. To weep with them as they are weeping. And again in Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. We're taught the very same lesson in slightly different words. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. But also for the interests of others. We're supposed to watch out for each other. Not see someone in a time of distress and go and loot their corpse. That's what Edom did to his brother Jacob. That's what we cannot do. We need to help. We need to be there to show a great deal of compassion and mercy and to care. Last New Testament shadow we'll look at in Obadiah is Obadiah 15. It says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. So the Edomites were perhaps in their prime as Jacob was being stripped and beaten and taken. God reminds them the day of the Lord is coming for everyone. There's not a single nation who would escape His judgment. The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, He says, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. That sounds a whole lot like Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that very familiar passage that so many like to quote. It's, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. In this case, their standard of measure was one that took advantage in a time of distress. One that didn't care that there was a terrible thing occurring. Gloated over their brother's misfortune. <coughs> took advantage of him. God says, as you have done, it will be done to you. And so we are called to consider the way that we treat other people in the New Testament. Because as judgment was coming for all the nations, so all, all people will be judged. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, we're told that God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That is a process that God instilled from the very onset of creation. And so there's a great deal of personal application that can be made here about personal relationships, personal interaction within the church, outside of the church. But then there's also something else. We've got to remember that the book of Obadiah was not written to an individual. It was written to a nation. And these principles are being applied on a national scale. 
So what's your response? How should I, as an individual, as a, as a citizen of the nation, America, the United States of America, how should I respond when perhaps our enemies are completely obliterated? What should be my thought? Should I rejoice and skip in that day? Certainly not. Certainly not. There ought to be a great deal of mourning whenever human life is lost. There ought to be a great deal of empathy and sympathy for that loss and a valuing of human life, of the soul that was in that body. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says that you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. With more and more ways to interact with each other and with the people of this world, it becomes easier and easier to be swayed to their way of thinking, especially regarding people that we naturally want to dislike or even hate. People who threaten lives, people who threaten perhaps the way of life that you're used to, the country that you live in, your loved ones. But God teaches us that even those people are, are to be loved by us, even those people are to be prayed for by us so that we can be His sons. So that we can be perfect as He is perfect. Verse 48. Because He showed us a great deal of love and compassion when we were undeserving. He showed us a great deal of love while we were still His enemies. While we still stood against Him and hoped Perhaps to destroy the way He wants life to be. He still showed us that compassion, that love. And we must do the same. 1 Timothy chapter 2 teaches us that we're to pray for our leaders. And he, the idea there is that we can leave a, or lead a tranquil and quiet life so that, so that we aren't persecuted. But there's also something else there, and that is that God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. We ought to be praying for our leaders, especially in a year when we've got a change in the leadership of our country, that their view of our enemies is one that is just, but also one which values human life. One which values the soul as God does. And above all, we must remember the goal of our Lord. That it was and that it is to save every soul. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. No matter their nationality or their upbringing. We ought to live life with that goal at the forefront of our attitudes toward others and the way that we treat them. And in every interaction we have, the question must be asked... Am I opening or closing a door for the gospel by the way I'm treating them? 
I'm not saying that, uh, that you can decide if they'll obey the gospel or not. But I am saying that sometimes the way we treat people, the attitude that we have, the words that come out of our mouths, can open or close that door. Especially if they know you're a Christian. And so we need to think about the Lord we serve. We need to consider the way our actions or inaction affects the people around us. We need to think correctly and lovingly and prayerfully about our enemies and value human life because God does. Tonight, if you're here and you have not obeyed the gospel yet, you have an opportunity to do that. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came and He died, was buried, and on the third day raised again, and you are willing to repent of your sins, confess His name before us, and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then we're here to help you with that. And we won't stop you. But if you are a Christian already, and you found yourself living in ways that are contrary to what you see in the Scriptures, tonight is a wonderful time to return to God's will, to return to living the way that He would have you to live. Don't leave tonight on God's bad side. Don't leave tonight in a place of sin. Leave tonight in the light. Leave tonight with a smile because you walk with the Lord. Make that the way you leave this building tonight. And if you need to make a change to do that, Please make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing.